Diluted dreams are home for joy. It's been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. What comes to mind? when you hear the words full circle. The standard definition of this phrase means a return to a past position or situation, almost as though the happening is inevitable. If we think about a person's life, we could relate it to the moment a baby is born and the nurse immediately cleans the child's body before placing her into the arms of her mother. And then, life goes full circle, and the embalmer cleans her body before placing her into the casket. Another comparison might be the seemingly weightless feel of that same child's body as her mom places her in the crib. Time passes, life goes full circle, and then her loved ones feel the immense emotional weight as they lower her body into the ground. Just over three years ago, I introduced you to a poverty-stricken area known as Little Kentucky and shared the stories of neighborhood women who were weakened in life and silenced by death. And today, we'll go full circle and end the Watered Down Women podcast the same way it began, by recalling the names and lives of women who suffered abuse and torture at the hands of evil and maniacal men. In episode one of this podcast, we met three women whose lives were ended by men they once loved and trusted. Sadly, Richland isn't the only county whose women have fallen victim to men who were empowered by the gratification they received from demoralizing, degrading, and eventually destroying the women they claimed to have actually loved. Several families in Ashland County, Ohio, have experienced the same heartbreak and anguish that comes from losing a loved one at the hands of a murderer. On July 14, 1972, Janice Smith Spade was fleeing by car as her estranged husband fired shots at the vehicle, causing her to crash into a ditch. As she fled the car and attempted to escape on foot, George Spade shot her dead. In 1988, Carolyn Wooten Moore was granted a court order of protection against her ex-husband, Lee Moore Jr. And on November 30th, He violated that order, arrived at her door, and fatally shot her in the head. In 
three years later, on April 2nd, 1991, Kathy Bucher Middleton's sister went to her home and suspected that something didn't seem right. She notified the Ashland County Sheriff's Department, who arrived to discover Kathy had been brutally murdered by her husband, James. The following year, some young boys were playing outside of their home on a warm summer day. Suddenly, shots rang out from a large caliber handgun. And at that very moment, their mother, Marty Martin Bursley's life was ended by her estranged husband, Glenn. Marty had made a desperate call to her parents, but they arrived too late to prevent the tragedy from happening. After shooting Marty, Glenn turned the gun on himself, and the couple's children were orphaned on that day. Barbara Keener Seiler of Nankin was murdered in the early afternoon of September 20, 2001. On that day, her estranged husband, Brian Seiler, killed her inside her home, then hanged her body in the garage to make her death appear as a suicide. Their three-year-old son was left at home with his mother's body until it was discovered. The child implicated his father in the death of his mother, and Brian Seiler was later sentenced to 25 years in prison for ending Barb's life. In 2003, Crystal Houchin Cooper told her husband Roy that she wanted a divorce. On Sunday, May 25th, late in the evening, Crystal was murdered by Roy. Left to grieve the loss of their mother, was Crystal's son and her three daughters. On April 28, 2012, Rachel Kaiser left work and visited her boyfriend, Brian Emrath. Upon entering his home, she had no idea that she would never leave there alive. An enraged Emrath grabbed a 22 caliber rifle and shot Rachel in the face and in the top of her head. She was found clutching her car keys and her purse, indicating that she was attempting to escape. Less than three months later, on July 4th, Lynn Jackenheimer, her estranged ex-boyfriend, Nate Summerfield, the couple's three-year-old son, and Len's 13-year-old daughter left Ashland and headed to Nags Head, North Carolina. A few days later, Summerfield and the children returned to Ashland. Lynn's body was discovered on the outer banks of North Carolina. She had been strangled and stabbed to death by Summerfield. Two years after the death of Lynn Jackenheimer, in the very early hours of November 6, 2014, Billy Joe Campbell was discovered 
stabbed and unconscious in her mother's residence. She later died from her wounds, and charged with her murder was her boyfriend, Stephen Valentine. And on July 15, 2019, an emergency call was placed reporting that shots were being fired into an Ashland man's apartment. Other reports started pouring in, and officers responded to find that a resident had barricaded himself inside of his apartment. Once the standoff had ended, authorities entered the residence and discovered the body of Charity Fisher Hovac. She had been shot twice in the head by her husband, Eric. These ten women are missed by their loved ones, and their lives are remembered each October during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. In order to gain more insight into the mindset of domestic violence victims and their abusers, I met with Rebecca Garcia, Program Director for Ashland's Safe Haven. When asked why a person chooses to harm someone they claim to love and care about, Rebecca explained the characteristics of most abusers. Sometimes there's a lot of trauma in the world and they're just trying to control somebody, but abuse, what people go through here, it is, um, it's about power and control. So the perpetrator, whomever it is, is dealing with some sort of insignificance in their world where they feel insignificant and they want power and control and they're willing to do it in such a way to harm somebody. And a lot of times somebody they care about, but usually somebody that's within their family or their most intimate person that's next to them um, just so that they can feel powerful again. We have learned throughout this podcast that the woman in these situations usually isn't the only victim of the abuser. Rebecca explained how living in a home where violence is rampant has a tremendous negative impact on the physical well-being and the emotional psyche of the children. If children are in the home and they're witnessing it, they're much more likely to be in abusive relationships themselves and or become abusers themselves. This is something they've witnessed. This is how they've learned how relationships are supposed to work. This is how I learn how to get what I want. I bully, I force myself, I learn how to do these things. So we see this pattern often with kiddos and that's why they say in custody cases or in court cases, the risk level um, for children in the home is extremely high for them to have a lot of issues later on in life. Rebecca and I talked at length about the reasons that would cause someone to remain in an abusive situation, and she explained the methods used by perpetrators to establish control over their victims. Unfortunately, uh, abusive relationships are so multifaceted, and especially if they're intimate partner relationships, which the majority of them are. They're abused by somebody they absolutely love. And so it's not that they want to leave somebody that they don't love anymore. They still love them. They just want the abuse to stop. So often they, they get away for a little bit and the abuser, they, it's a cycle. They go through it. Um, 
in the domestic violence cycle, it's very common where then all of a sudden everything's going to be fine. I'm so sorry. And they repeat with apologies and then it feels so good again. It's like, oh, that's just all I wanted. And then they go back home and it's not very long and it's repeated again and repeated again. And they really want it to be different. They want it to change. But we've got people here that now I have no finances. So um, that's a huge barrier to leaving. Um, I, they get threatened all the time that they're gonna take the children or you're not gonna be able to take care of the children. Who's gonna let you take care of them? You don't have income. A lot of times if that's how they've been controlled as well, they don't have access to income. They don't have support because what abuser will often do is isolate them away from their support people. That's one of the greatest tactics I always say, it, and even in war, is divide and conquer, right? I've, if I can get you all away from your support people, all of your family, so that now the only person you have is me, and then you get away from me, you have no more supports. So they often move them geographically away from their family. They have no job, no money, no access to resources unless they get so desperate to come to a place like shelter where they're strangers and they have to start all over again. And that is a whole nother hurdle to just, I have to start all over. I have to figure this out. Sometimes they come here, they don't even have IDs. Mm -hmm. They don't have their birth certificate. They, they can't apply for anything if you don't have those things. So we have to start all over again. And that takes time and it's frustrating and they don't have money and they don't have resources. And then if they've ever fled before and there's an eviction in their history, um, which often sometimes that happens too, where they put everything in the resident or the female's name or the uh, victim's name. And then when they leave, it's their credit that gets ruined. All those things that happen. And so in, at least in our small town right now, you can't get, um, an apartment if you have an eviction in your history, especially if it's recent. And then you have credit issues if they haven't kept jobs because they weren't allowed to keep jobs they've been made to quit or their abuser comes to work and makes a scene and the boss is like I can't I can't deal with this we've even had women who lost their apartments because they had to call the police and the apartment has no you know a no police call policy where they then get evicted because they had to call the police for their safety the system isn't set up for victims it's definitely set up for having to prove something and they don't have the resources to do that. Rebecca shared that Safe Haven is a dual program that provides support and advocacy for victims of sexual assault. And it offers free and safe shelter for victims of domestic violence. But she stressed that prevention is one of Safe Haven's top priorities. So we have um, an individual whose job solely is doing outreach and prevention. And what matters most to us is prevention. Boy, our hearts are bent on if we can prevent this from ever happening. So we go into the schools. We go into all five school districts in Ashland County. We do middle school, high school, and college curriculum. They're evidence-based curriculums about safe dates and about being a bystander and how to prevent um, something that they've seen or they learn about in relationships. Um, we will also do tabling events, um, presentations. We, we do it all if anybody asks us, we do businesses. We will do sometimes webinars um, and trainings for professionals as well. So all they have to do is ask and we'll make sure that we can get it done. After years, 
spent in responding to crisis situations and witnessing the physical and emotional effects of abuse and countless families over these past several years. I asked Rebecca how she manages to continue in the fight to restore hope in the lives of so many women. She became tearful as she struggled to find the words to best express her feelings about this life-changing work. So this is uh, trauma work. So um, there's a lot of people in trauma work, whether you're doing counseling or you're in shelters like this or working in corrections or working in the law enforcement as a first responder. But um, for me, my faith is what drives me. Um, I'm a believer and the Lord has said, like, these are the people that you're supposed to go after. The widowed, the poor, the, you know, the people in need, the people that have been left without resources. And um, if we don't do it, who will? In 1990, a program called the Silent Witness Initiative was implemented to educate people about domestic violence. And through the utilization of community-based exhibits, this approach brings to light the number of people who have died at the hands of their abuser. Another way to visually represent an individual who is no longer here is through the Empty Chair Project. This imagery serves as an acknowledgement of a life that was and the hopes of what might have been. As we enter the holiday season, this is the perfect time to set a place of honor for the loved one you have lost. Although the chair is physically empty, fill it with memories of that special person. Recall the fun times you shared. Try to remember the sound of her voice, the echo of her laughter, and the smile that adorned her unforgettable face. Water down Diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. A fool's paradise, hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. Weekend in life, while searching for love. From above, passionate promises made with each breath, deceptive affection ended in death. Girl's shattered image of a fairy tale life was filled with the agony of bruises and strife, reaching for anything to resemble promise. Savagery that was a mess. Watered down women with diluted dreams. All hope for joy has been washed down the street. 